paper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis every week on the news media issues that have been going on in recent days, and we are really grateful to have you join us this week for our conversation. I'm Rex Smith, your host here, former editor of the Times Union, now the Upstate American folks on Substack, if you want to take a look at it. Dr. Alan Shartok is here, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio. We have Ira Fussfeld, publisher emeritus of the Kingston Daily Freeman, and Judy Patrick, vice president of the New York Press Association and for many years editor of the Daily Gazette of Schenectady. Everybody want to say hello together to make sure hello, that uh, we hello, can hear each other? Hello. One, two, three. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> hey, Rexy, I want to congratulate you on your new gig. Could you tell us a little oh. about it? What is it? Thank you. Well, I missed a week of writing columns when I retired from the Times Union, but I've been doing it ever since for about a month. You know, this actually is one of the topics that we might want to talk about this week, the emerging direct-to-consumer platforms. In my case, Substack is where my, what I consider to be a weekly column, people refer to it as a newsletter often. It's basically the notion of journalists creating their own content. In effect, you are your own publisher, and it gives you an opportunity to define what it is that your material is. So, for example, a lot of people these days are really excited about the historian Heather Cox Richardson. She does a daily newsletter and offers her views on politics and history. And it is just wonderful. She's making a lot of money at it, by the way, at $5 a month. And so I think there is a role these days for the different approach for not having professional journalism, as we've all experienced it. You know, we all came out of that ecosystem. But it's a different environment nowadays. I mean, here's one statistic that's really amazing. On Inauguration Day, CNN was the number one network. It drew 7.7 million viewers. But the live stream on CNBC got 10.2 million, so far more. And the hashtag Inauguration 2021 on TikTok garnered 215 million 215 million views. So the point is that you don't need a traditional publisher to reach the public nowadays. And that is presenting a challenge for traditional newsrooms like the Times Union, the Gazette, the Daily Freeman, WAMC. It's really a different world out there. Right. Well, we've discussed this quite a bit over the years. This is not a new phenomenon, but it's a widening phenomenon. I remember we've had arguments on this program about the definition of journalist, and one of our panelists accused the others of being chauvinistic about our use of we're journalists and nobody else is. 
But uh, this me, is where it's way. evolved to me. now. Yes. Oh, yeah. Did you recognize that? Very kind. You were very kind to try to protect me. But no, that was me. I, you know. And Rex, you're going to make a lot of money on this. I mean, five dollars a column. No, 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 no. I'm not going to make money on this. Well, I mean, I'm making a little. But no, no. It's, I charge people five dollars a month, and you would have to have quite a lot of subscribers to make a lot of money at five dollars a month. Patricia Cox well, Richardson does. I'm sorry, Heather Cox Richardson. She's terrific. And you know, some of the big names who have been on previous platforms or used to be in the New York Times and so on are now going to these platforms that enable them to reach directly to the niche audiences. That, but do, your uh, column is not edited. You write it and you post it. <laughs> I differentiate not being edited from... No, no, no. I, I, the, the point I'm right. trying to make is, are there people who we would not traditionally call journalists writing for a place like Substack and then just putting it up without it having been reviewed by anybody else? And does that not separate it from the traditional journalism world? I think that's true. That is part of it. In effect, you are your own publisher. So while there are many people who don't have a traditional journalism background, there are others who do come at it that way. And some people are publishing on Substack with whole teams of 20 people. They have a newsroom, but they use Substack as their publication platform. Medium is similar. They just have different methods of, uh, of, of list organization of who you actually send to. So, yes, you're right. You are your own publisher. And there's nobody saying, well, you can't say that because you're directly there. You really are. It's amazing. You've had some experience because at the Times Union, where you used to be, you had a platform that all kinds of people could be on, and then you decided not to do that anymore. Isn't that right? Yeah, and the interesting thing is this in that regard. You know, as a columnist for a newspaper, basically you ride for free, and you don't know who's reading your stuff and who's not. People are buying a newspaper for the comics, for Dear Abby, uh, for the sports coverage, and oh yeah, there's Rex Smith's column. Maybe we'll take a look at that too. But uh, this is purely your own thing. And so you rise or fall on the strength of your own content. So it's an interesting experiment for me in my retirement to see how this goes. And I just, I like the idea of being part of the emerging journalism ecosystem, uh, having spent the last 40 years in the old ecosystem. It's changing, you know? There are lessons here for the old ecosystems too, for legacy media to look at what TikTok's doing, what's happening on all these other platforms, and adapt because they have the in-house talent. A lot of the talent still remains in legacy media, and they can learn how people are telling stories or conveying information in new ways and kind of get out of the rut that many of them have been in for so many years and diversify a little bit and tell their stories in new ways. And so I think it's all good. It's just a matter of legacy media has got to keep their eyes open and be flexible about what they do going forward. Well, I don't disagree with any of that. And the train has already left the station, so I'm not going to suggest that the substacks of the world are going to go away immediately. But it still concerns me that if someone other than a Rex Smith who spent his whole career in journalism and as an editor editing people and understands what goes and what doesn't go, the opening is there for people to just post stuff that is not meeting the historic criteria of what journalism is, factually or otherwise. And to the extent that that is happening more widespread, and it is, I think it knocks down walls that could be very dangerous for people who already distrust the media and its accuracy, because I would contend that the possibility of, for more inaccuracies occur if the only person whose eyeballs are on a particular story is the person who wrote it. 
I think you have a very good point there, and it really goes to something interesting that was just released as we speak, a new study that was a joint effort by the American Press Institute, which is about as establishment as can be, that is the newspaper industry group and the Associated Press Nork Center for Public Affairs. So this is a big survey taken in 2019 and 2021 on how the public non-journalists define the mission of journalism by comparison to how journalists do. And it really speaks to what we're talking about here. The core principles or beliefs that drive most journalists, what we think we're supposed to do, keep watch on public officials and the powerful, amplify voices that go unheard. We believe that getting more information in the open makes society work better, that more facts give people access to the truth. And you have to spotlight a community's problems to solve them. Non-journalists don't buy that. The fact is that less than a third of the general public agree with the idea that it's important to aggressively point out problems. Only 11% of the public, most of them liberals, offer full support for those five fundamental ideals of journalism. So people already have moved away from what professional journalists have said is our role. And I don't know how you get the genie back into the bottle, is that the thing? and restore the traditional relationship of the traditional media with the public. Isn't it possible that when they tell a pollster they don't agree with that, with those five criteria, that they are really saying, we don't think that you're really doing what you're saying you're doing, that it's somewhat self-seeking? I mean, that's inartful the way I've said that, but Mm -hmm. you understand what I'm talking about? Yes, that people are... It's not that they disagree with the principles, but they just don't think that journalists are delivering it, right? Right. You've often said on this show, one of our core principles is do no harm, right? Not quite. No, that's, again, confusing. Uh, yeah, no, it's, I, it's minimize I, I harm, consistent with our truth-telling responsibility. Do no harm is what doctors are told. That's the Hippocratic oath. Right. But we're, you're right. close. Yeah, it's almost that. <laughs> minimize harm, consistent with truth-telling. Yes. Maybe the people who are answering the polls don't believe that that's what really you guys do. I mean, if you say minimize harm... And then somebody feels their husband's business or their wife's business has been, see what I did there, has been harmed. You know, that I know somebody who was harmed. What are you guys talking about? I'm worried that this represents the American public's acceptance that there's a certain amount of corruption that they're willing to live with it. You know, that they believe that their core institutions are corrupt and, you know, what's the use of pointing it out? They're going to stick their heads in the sand. I like the idea, though, that they support the idea of fact-finding. And it really isn't essentially watchdog reporting just fact-finding and pointing out the facts to the public as well. It's just a really disturbing report, but I think we just have to keep going. And I think this is just a moment in time coming off the Trump presidency where, where we're getting a little bit of this. I think things will reset in the next year or two. I just think it also underscores the influence, and I would say negative influence, of the explosion of opinion programming on cable and on radio and print, too, to the extent that there there have always been opinionated pieces in print, but it really has taken on a life of its own, and people are gravitating to the opinion makers that they agree with, and that goes back to this whole business that we've talked about of fact-based journalism doesn't exist anymore because people can't agree on what a fact is. To say nothing of the fact that Donald Trump hated the press, called him the enemy of the people, and put it out there, and 73% of the electorate agree with Donald Trump enough to vote for him. So he did some real harm, I suspect, when it comes to respect for the press. 
Well, he did tremendous harm, but the irony is that he really doesn't hate the press. He loves the press. He loves getting his picture on TV and his name in the newspapers, but he was smart enough, and yes, I'm using the word smart, to portray the press as the enemy and denigrate them. So he had it both ways. I don't know that it can come back the way that you're imagining it could, because consider this. In in 2000, which to some of us at a certain age sounds like not that long ago, in 2000, a Gallup poll... (laughs) said that 53% of Democrats said they trusted the media and 47% of Republicans did. So it's not that far off. In the last full year of the Trump presidency, last year, here's what the Gallup poll found. 73% of Democrats said they trust the media, but only 10% of Republicans. So you have an entire almost half the electorate, 47% of the electorate voted for Donald Trump, right? Saying only 10% of them trust the media. How do you ever come back from that? I've been saying that for a long time. I think he's done incredible harm, and the current climate is very troubling because I don't see us coming back. And you know, it isn't only Donald Trump. You know, you get somebody like Andrew Cuomo. There's a clear difference between Andrew Cuomo and some of the major press. You know, I get a lot of letters saying the Times is after Cuomo. And you hear that kind of thing. So people are able to project into any politician's relationship with any individual or any newspaper based on what? Based on the idea that newspapers pick out targets and go after them. Is it possible that Andrew Cuomo, having been politically weakened by recent events, is now much more in the crosshairs of the media and that there is, in fact, an eagerness to, quote, get him on the part of reporters? Anybody want to uh, address that issue? Well, I'm not a member of the Albany Press Corps, but I, I believe that reporters are human beings. I don't believe that the reporters are going after Cuomo per se, but I do believe that they see a story and they smell a story. And given what they may have felt was lousy treatment of them by Cuomo and Trump, that there's a spring in their step when they're going after these <laughs> stories. But I don't think they're making anything up. I don't think the reporters are out to get them. I I would like to say that the stories about Cuomo have been written for years, but they haven't got the attention that they're getting now because things have accelerated. I mean, he put himself out there with his response to the virus. He wrote a book, and then you had all these accusations come out, and I think it's building, and there are real legitimate issues. But it's not like they haven't been covered before. They were. Now we're seeing comprehensive views of it and putting it all in context, which is what real journalism does. And the idea that they're out to get them, any supporter of of any politician will always criticize press that comes after their favorite son or daughter. It's true. And it happens with every one of them. I mean, has there ever been a governor or a president who did not think they were getting fair treatment? At one point or another, there's always conflict. That's the way the system's built. Maybe FDR, if you went back that far, and the press was quite compliant. Of course, you had a depression and a world war going on at the same time, so it may have been a little different. You know, I was alive during FDR's time. Most of you don't know that. And it's very important for me to bring my historical perspective, personal historical perspective. (laughs) You know, I think even Abraham Lincoln got bad press. Were you alive then? Absolutely. Uh, You know, you you read Harold Holzer's terrific book about the presidents and the press, and there has been historic enmity between the chief executive and the media covering him going back to George Washington's time. So there has never been a character like Donald Trump before. 
um, who so gleefully targeted the media and tried to undermine public confidence in the free press in general. Presidents, at least, have always given lip service, at least, to the value of the First Amendment, to people being able to get information. Donald Trump, as president, did not do that and tried to undermine the actual media itself. So that's a different world. And now, you know, the difficulty with handling the Cuomo story, and I think this is something that reporters have to confront, is that it is very difficult to ascertain where there is opportunistic political, oh, let's say a chance for people to get back at Andrew Cuomo, who don't have his interests at heart. And where we're being used, uh, because, uh, you know, we know that everybody uses the media. We know that we are often basically given information that people want to see out there for their ulterior motives. We just have to be doubling down to make sure that we are getting it right. So this week's New York Times, Sunday of Times magazine has a a large profile of Cuomo and recent events, as well as his early going back to his early days. And there are about a half dozen places where stories are told that are perhaps profane or at the very least not very favorable to Cuomo. And in each of those half a dozen or so places, a spokesman denies that what was reported has ever happened. What should the journalist and the journalist editor do when they're writing a story that is filled with denials is it do you just say okay we've given both sides or are are you warded off the story good question yeah it's an age-old question that everybody has to struggle with you know at what point do you say i don't have a story here and therefore i'm not going to do it as opposed to hey they gave me the assignment i'm going to do it whether whether they like it or not and if there are false claims and they deny them we'll put the false claim in and we'll put the denial in Reporters get this kind of denial all the time, and there are cases when it's actually true or it will really stop a story. But then history plays out, and you will find that the denial actually wasn't true. And I think especially a seasoned reporter will come to realize that denials are often inaccurate. And so that's the decision from a reporter and an editor working together to determine whether or not you go forward when you get so many denials. And the New York Times profile of Cuomo, it was so repetitive, it it almost got amusing because there were so many of these denials that you had to wonder whether or not, you know, the denial was just an automatic response to every question. They can't all be wrong. Yeah, this is where the credibility of a media representative for a politician and the credibility of a politician is so important because if you are a press officer, and I've I've spent years on that side of the notebook as a press secretary for politician, if you don't have a reputation for being a truth teller, if you haven't been a pretty straight shooter, then your denials when your boss is in trouble are not going to amount to anything. But if the reporters know that you're not somebody who's going to lie to them, you may be, well, as Emily Dickinson says, tell all the truth, but tell it slant, success and circuit lies. Just want to do a little literary allusion here on the Media Project. We know that the media representatives tell the truth as they see it, but they don't lie. And so you need to, that is, the best of them don't lie. If you're a flack and you have a reputation for distorting the truth, for lying, no kind of effort to protect your boss will do you any good because you have ruined your credibility from the get-go. That's why a good press secretary actually matters for a politician.
Now, you've known some good ones in your life, Rex. Tim Russert was one of them. You want to tell us a little about him? Well, I became a full-time reporter in Albany after Russert had left, actually. So I worked with him a little bit, but you dealt with him quite a bit, didn't you, Alan? Yeah, he was a guy who wasn't going to roll over for every politician, any politician. That is for sure. And you got to understand, and I've been around enough politicians when this happened, that they're screaming at the press secretary, go out there and tell them thus and so, and it may not be so. And the press secretary has the um, choice. Do I tell him he's full of it and then get fired, or do I say, okay, boss? I think that, you know, another person who filled that role effectively was the co-creator of this program with you, Alan, and that is Gary Fryer, who is Mario Cuomo's uh. press secretary. Fryer was a guy who would just clam up when there was something that he couldn't justify, meaning he wouldn't lie to you. He would just avoid you assiduously. <laughs> and Gary was a guy who retained the respect of the reporters. Yeah, he did. Mm-hmm. He was a great guy, a great guy. Absolutely. So, you know, we're talking here about politicians, but but this kind of credibility also goes to all kinds of other topics. And, and one thing we just really need to deal with here is uh, in the coronavirus realm, the media's role in reporting on the pause in the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. This is a big deal. John also wrote an interesting piece in Columbia Journal's review about this, about the media's role in communicating risk. Because in telling people about this highly unusual blood clotting experience, apparently, that may be related to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, are you indicating that you're helping people to trust better because stuff is being reviewed very carefully? Are you damaging the credibility of the vaccine process? It's a very tricky landmine for journalists, isn't it? Yeah, think about it. If you've got six million of these things given out already, And you have six cases. That's one in a million. And how do I know that? Because I heard it. I didn't make it up. I heard it in the press. So that is something that they tell you in order to prepare you to be able to be knowledgeable about all of it. Judy, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Part of the problem in this case was the fact that the announcement of the pause happened, and then they waited about 12 hours for the briefing for CDC officials to actually explain what was happening and why. And 12 hours in this media landscape is a lifetime, and all the media did try to discuss the risk, but I think... They need to get out there quicker to explain all these different kinds of risks. It's a very nuanced kind of story, and risk is something the public really has a hard time grasping. And it just gave more ammunition to the anti-vax people, and the CDC could have done a better job of explaining earlier. Uh, The initial reports were, and they weren't inaccurate, they were reporting on the problems that they had discovered. But it took a while, as Judy points out, to come up with that statistic that Alan just raised and that one in a million or whatever came out to were at risk for this blood clot and the risk of actually getting the disease if you didn't take a vaccine was greater than that. So people needed to weigh this information, but the information as it initially came out was negative. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people didn't hear the more specific information. The hard thing is that people read headlines and go with that, or they listen to just a a brief newscast at the top of the hour, and it's hard then for them to understand the minuteness of the clotting risk. This is why, you know, some forms of journalism other than straight storytelling can be very good. Visualization, for example, so that you can see 
how much more likely it is, for example, to be in a car accident than it is for this clotting risk, or how much more likely it is, in fact, for you to be struck by a lightning bolt. So these are just some of the difficulties of communicating that if you're a journalist when there is risk, there is government action to try to minimize it, but you have to somehow convey that, and that is difficult journalism there. So we all need to become visual journalists so that we can do a better job of conveying that kind of storytelling rather than just relentlessly tweeting, oh my God, what's going on here? Let's make sure that that doesn't happen anymore. Right. This was not a good story to tweet out. I saw a lot of bad tweets on this story. I think you could effectively tweet the risks, but I think Twitter was probably the least effective way of getting this information out to the public. Well, what's the phrase, Rex, you're the farmer in the group where you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink? I mean, we can present all these facts, but we can't force people to read them and digest them. I love the notion that I'm the farmer in the group because I was born in the Midwest. That's pretty good. <laughs> well, you know, as a journalist that serves you well, there are a lot of bulls, you know, in uh, <laughs> and, and a certain amount of product comes from them, and that sets you up on life well, doesn't it? <laughs> And now you're on Substack. And now here you go. You know, I've migrated and we'll see what comes out. Oh, well, what can you do? And finally, Alan, give us your insight, if you would, please, into what's been going on with the Derek Chauvin trial and in the coverage out of Minnesota in recent days, as we've seen now the defense putting on its case. Well, here's the point. None of us are on the jury. So what I do is I look at it as much as I can, the trial, and then I also read the Times and the Washington Post every morning at 2 o'clock in the morning and see what they make of it and which little pieces they have picked out, you know, to comment on. So a lot of it is going to be dependent on whether you read it in the New York Post or whether you read it in the Washington Examiner or whether you read it in the New York Times. So yeah. our perception of reality depends on what we were told or what was written. So true. All right. On that last point, we're going to have to give it up because we're out of time. Yeah, it's true. It's all we have this time for. It's going to be an hour. <laughs> I still get emails from people telling me that. Alan Shartok, Judy Patrick, Ira Fussfeld, and I'm Rex Smith with thanks to our producer, David Gustina, and to you folks for joining us once again this week on The Media Project. To get insurance, she employed skullduggery. She up and cut her husband's only throat. She chopped him into fragments, she stuffed him in a trunk. She shipped it all back yonder to her uncle in Podunk. Now newspaper men meet such interesting people. It must have startled poor old Sadie's unk. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk, hold the press, hold the press. Extra, extra, read all about it, it's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. Like the richest girl who could not bake a cake. Ding -ling, ding -ling. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Ira Fussfeld is the publisher emeritus of the Daily Freeman. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Ling Ling Newspaper Guild, got a free new world to build. Meet the people, that's a thrill, all together fits the bill. Oh, newspaper men are such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the show. 
publishers are such interesting people. Their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. It's funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.